0: Hello and welcome to Season 3 of Rural Business Uncovered, brought to you by the CLA, where we discuss matters affecting the rural sector. The Country Land and Business Association is the membership organisation that provides support and expert advice to landowners and rural businesses across England and Wales. The UK hosted the 26th UN Climate Change Conference COP26 in Glasgow between the 31st of October and the 13th of November this year. The COP26 summit brought parties together to reach a global agreement on how to tackle climate change and accelerate action towards the key goal of the Paris Agreement to limit warming to 1.5 degrees. In the lead up to COP26, the UK government published several reports on how the UK economy will transition to net zero, such as the net zero strategy heat and buildings strategy and the Treasury's net zero review. With climate change an increasing urgent priority on the global political agenda, what does this mean for farming? Well, here to tackle this question and much more, we're joined by Alice Green, CLA's land use policy advisor for climate and water. Uh, I'm also joined by John Foote, head of environment and resource management uh, at the AHDB. Welcome both. Great to have you on this podcast. Um, Alice, if I can just start with you. Tell us a bit about your role with the CLA.
1: Hi. Yeah. So as you've said, I'm in the land use policy team um, with the CLA. So I focus on climate and water. So I'm really there to give advice to members on these topics um, and to kind of see how the policy develops in these areas. There's obviously a lot of change going on and how we need to tackle the climate at the moment.
0: Absolutely. Well, thank you, Alice. Uh, John, over to you. Tell us about your background and your role with the AHDB.
2: Thank you. So, I manage a, a small team. Uh, I'm the head of environment at HDB, uh, and we have a focus in supporting our levy payers to uh, prepare and be uh, better adapted to manage climate change, both in terms of the way that climate change will impact their day-to-day businesses, but also to look at you know, future opportunities in terms of carbon, uh, carbon markets, uh, and we also support them with you know, issues around water, uh, soil management, uh, uh, crop health, etc. All of those things are interlinked uh, and it's quite a complicated landscape. So we're really just trying to help them navigate through that.
0: Well, thank you, John. And thank you both once again for, for uh, introducing yourselves. Um, I just want to start by getting a grasp of what's, what's the attitude of farmers towards climate change. And, and John, if I can start with you, you work obviously with your levy payers uh, uh, across the country. Do, are they embracing climate change as, as a business opportunity, or is there some nervousness or some scepticism?
2: I would say that, you know, many farmers are already taking positive action uh, on their farms to deliver, you know, good environmental and climate positive outcomes uh, while still trying to produce, you know, food and, you know, products that the consumer wants. So we mustn't lose sight of that. And there have been significant reductions in emissions since, you know, the 1990 baselines. But this doesn't hide the size of the challenge. Uh, and to be honest, if the targets were too easy, I don't think, you know, the public or any other uh, sort of stakeholder would thank us for that. So I think they're quite nervous about the, the, the scale of the challenge and also the complexity of the challenge. But they see where the opportunities potentially lie and they want to get there. But what I would say is that they're probably frustrated by the complexity of com- uh, conflicting messages Uh, The plethora of tools, the multiple asks for the same data and information that they're being asked for. So, what we've got to do, and especially uh, we at AHDB, I've got to work with all of those who are uh, interested in carbon markets, along with you know the you know techniques and approaches that can help farmers move towards net zero and simplify that landscape so that you know farmers almost have a roadmap that they can choose the best options for their farm and their business but enable them and make it easier for them to move in in the right direction. Because at the moment, it's, it's too complicated and a bit confusing.
0: Yeah. Alice, would you agree with that? Is the complexities um, being uh, somewhat of a frustration to farmers and landowners?
1: Yeah, I would definitely agree with John's point on complexity. So the CLA undertook a survey on climate change with our members um, over the summer of 2021 to try and provide a bit of a snapshot on what what people are thinking. Um, We had a pretty good sample size. We had uh, over a thousand responses and these were telephone interviews good range of holding size so about 50% had less than 100 acres 50 uh, 50% had more than 100 acres um, and also quite good spread across um, england and wales but the survey results showed that only 48% believe they're able to reduce their holdings impact on climate change and i think that really reflects how complex this is so people aren't feeling that they can really take action um, the results really showed that they're with regards to a farmer's attitude to climate change, there's still sort of some work to be done to ensure that they actually feel that they can have an active role in mitigating and adapting to climate change. And I think guiding people through these kind of complex zones and trying to simplify things and how they can access funding, um, what they should be doing, um, what what the right thing to do is, is going to be really key.
0: And I guess the starting point, John, is, is to understand the baseline, where we're starting from. And picking up on one of your points, that there's a plethora of calculators there, carbon calculators. Without an industry standard, is it almost pointless doing an audit?
2: No, it's not pointless um, uh, undertaking an audit, because actually those tools, even if they're not 100% accurate in absolute terms, still give you a good indication of where the hotspots are. Uh, on your farm and where you can put the focus uh, to sort of reducing your carbon emissions. And let's remember carbon is uh, money. You know, at the end of the day, those products that are high carbon footprints uh, usually come at high cost. And they're usually the, the, the sort of areas that you have the ability to sort of optimise and control to a greater degree than maybe you know what the weather is doing, what your your soils, uh, what your livestock are doing at a particular point in time, because you can control that within a year. So I would say you know go out and measure your carbon footprint, create a plan. You know focus on the things. You know it's it's really about marginal gains rather than a big bang. You know concentrate on the things that will make a difference to your bottom line. It will make a difference to your your carbon footprint. Maybe talk about what you've done in terms of creating that plan with your customers. Because, and you can say you're working towards developing an action plan, or you can say you've got a plan uh, and, you know, part of that plan might be improving your baselines and understanding where you are. Then, you know, keep measuring and look at, you know, what's changing around you in terms of market conditions, legislation, what your consumers want, what's happening in terms of your business, and adapt that plan as you need to and keep trying to reduce the emissions overall. It puts you in a good place to then be able to access, you know, further financial support, maybe from the banks, or, you know, in a good position to sell your product with supermarkets and and customers. You know, it's better to have a baseline than suddenly discover you need one. And keep everybody informed uh, about where you are in that action plan and be honest. And don't worry if it goes in the wrong direction, because dealing with a natural system so if the weather is poor in one year the numbers may go in a different direction maybe you've produced more produce to meet market demands and therefore your emissions have gone up because you've got more livestock or more crops on the farm so you know you will it, it will go up and down but overall the trend should be towards that sort of overall reduction and it's going to take time to do so it's really very much chipping away day in day out improving the efficiency of your farm improving the profitability of the farm and moving in the right direction. So I don't think it's a big bang, but you know, start using a tool, any tool, one that suits you or your customers want you to use, and keep using that tool consistently. Don't chop and change between the tools because otherwise, the differences between tools will be more significant than what you're you're measuring.
1: Yeah, I think consistency is key. So we've got a guidance note from the CLA on carbon accounting. If you do want to have a look at some of the different tools that are available, but what's really great is that some of these, are, a lot of these, in fact, are free to use. So there's there's not really an excuse not to not to have a go and get started. Um, but they are only as good as the data that you put in. So it's really about trying to make sure that your data is robust and that you're being consistent, as John said.
2: And we have been working with farmers um, through our Farm Excellence platform to support them to undertake carbon audits. And again, if people are quick, before Christmas, they can sign up to our Farm Business Review. You can see details on our website. And for some farmers, they can take up uh, not just only the the look at how BPS payments and the move to uh, SFI might affect them, but they can take up a carbon audit. And the key thing is we provide somebody to help you populate the tools and to then develop that action plan. And, and, you know, maybe that's the way to go for, you know, if you haven't got the time uh, or you find it a bit confusing, then to look at, you know, getting some uh, paid for advice to sort of help identify those opportunities.
0: And do you think, undertaking a farm carbon audit and producing an action plan is going to... At the moment, it's it's a voluntary action on the part of the farmer, but do you think that will become a a requirement for entry into some of the new schemes?
2: I would hope it remains sort of voluntary, but I think we are increasingly going to move to a world where farmers are going to have to provide this information, either for the consumer so they can compare uh, their produce versus alternatives, we will need to be able to get to a point where we've got uh, aggregated industry-wide data, uh, albeit anonymized, that enables us to support the the you know the good work that farmers are doing, but also increasingly to be able to sort of uh, exploit export markets, maybe where there are carbon border adjustment taxes. So carbon border adjustment taxes, you know, maybe say if your produce has a, a, a CO2 value of Greater than 10 per kilograms of product, then you have to pay a a tax or a a levy coming into that country. And that would then make you uncompetitive. But if you come under that, then your your produce can access that market without those tariffs. And I think we'll increasingly see those sort of things coming in 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 the future, maybe five to 10 years down the road. Um, But it's, you know, that will demand that data. But also the other thing is that if farmers want to be and land managers want to be able to make money from carbon offsets and carbon sequestration, you're going to have to measure something. You're going to have to have a baseline and and that needs to be robust in order for people to invest that money. So, you know, I I think it's coming. Um, Ideally, it should be done on a voluntary basis, but I think increasingly it will become almost mandated because market forces drive it. And what's your take on that Alice?
1: Yeah, I completely agree. I think we're seeing a lot of supermarkets now major retailers incorporating the farms that they source from within their net zero commitments. And ultimately if you're if you're not counting the carbon you you can't claim to be net zero um and you can't you may be uh, basically forced out of those markets. So while I would expect this to remain voluntary um I do think that there will be increasing pressure to take part. But as John says, it is an opportunity. Once you get to net zero, you've then got the opportunity to potentially sell sell carbon that you're sequestering, um, enter new markets, make your product more competitive, appeal to a new audience. And consumers are getting more savvy about this than they are. Demanding higher environmental quality from their products. Uh,
0: and John, it was interesting to note that um, the Committee on Climate Change have labelled agriculture and land use as as a hard to treat sector. Is that a fair label to give?
2: I, I don't think it is. I think you know, as I said earlier, the sector has already done a lot of good work, and and I think what the data often hides is the fact that emissions have come down. They may have stalled of late, but actually, you know, the amount of produce we're producing for UK consumers has remained pretty constant. So, you know, the efficiency in, in the way that we're producing that that product for the market is there while sustainability welfare standards have continued to improve. I, as I said, I think it's about delivering you know, marginal gains and I think there are significant opportunities for carbon sequestration, biodiversity net gain. All of these things need to come together And I think it's unlikely that there'll be a big bang approach where suddenly, you know, a wonder technology will come along. Having said that, we are looking at, you know, where some of those technologies of the future might be. uh, And we will be looking at how we can accelerate the adoption of those techniques and and technologies to support our levy payers and, uh, you know, farmers in general.
0: For members, CLA Insurance are more than just a broker. We are trusted advisors, providing the highest level of service and value for money for farm, land and estate, home, motor, as well as business, legal expenses and trustee indemnity insurance. Contact the CLA Insurance team today on 01234 230295, or visit www.clainsurance.co.uk for a no-obligation quotation. one of the key agreements uh, to come out of COP26 is the Global Methane Pledge. How should farmers be responding to this?
1: Um, yeah, so perhaps firstly, to give a bit of a background to the Global Methane Pledge, it was launched by the US and the EU. And as of uh, during COP, around 110 other participants signed up, the UK being one of them. Now, we don't know what the relative contribution of the UK will be, Um against this target, which is to reduce methane emissions by 30% by 2030 on a 2020 baseline. But we can expect that farming will be a sector that needs to respond. Agriculture is the main source of methane emissions in the UK. So this was always going to be something which needed to be addressed as part of the sector's transition to net zero. But I do think the methane pledge will bring it more to the forefront. Um, In terms of looking at what farmers can do, we really need to think about where our emissions come from. So over eighty percent of agricultural methane emissions come from enteric fermentation. So that's the burping of cows, basically, um, a little bit from sheep and other ruminants as well, and then the remainder comes from manure management. So it's really looking at those two activities and thinking how we can adapt and try and reduce methane emissions. So there's a lot of feed additives and interesting technologies that are beginning to come to market now. Um, so we're really interested to see how these develop. So adding sort of seaweed and various different things to cows' cow feed um, to reduce the amount of enteric fermentation and the amount of methane that is produced as a result. So it's going to be really key that these... Technologies are proven, that they can achieve regulatory approval and that they're actually able to be brought to market at scale at a cost which isn't prohibitive to farmers to be able to use. Um, but it'll be really interesting to see how some of these technologies develop.
2: And and to add to that, I think you know, we're looking to undertake some uh research on some of the, f- the feed additives because you know, are the, the claims genuine? Are they do they last? Uh, and persist uh, beyond uh, a short period of time? And are there any health impacts for the livestock? So we, we want to look at that. For more intensive farms, as uh, Alice has said, you know, we've got you know, good manure and, and slurry management. And we're looking at sort of technologies, uh, about, you know, whether or not you can capture that methane uh, and use it to generate uh, renewable energy. When not, you can also uh, put other additives in to sort of then capture hydrogen and use that to generate uh, renewable energy uh, on farm, or maybe, you know, providing feedstocks for, you know, um, uh, gas in the future, um, when uh, the grid has uh, sort of decarbonised. So there are there are opportunities there. Um, but uh, I suppose one thing to bear in mind, and, and this is where I know a lot of farmers uh, get quite uh, annoyed, is that for a lot of the benefits that we accrue, if we take the renewable energy, that doesn't get accounted for in our budget. And if we plant trees, it doesn't get accounted for our budget. The trees go to forestry, the energy goes to the energy sector. And so, you know, we do a lot of good work, but we don't get necessarily the value for that. And I think one of the things we need to do is seek to change that um, to, um, uh, you know, make it fair, fair reflection of what we're doing in the sector. And lastly, in terms of technologies, um, we're also working on uh, genomics uh, and we're looking at how those genomics we can select for, you know, better productivity in the animals. And we can also select them to, you know, be less ill, uh, you know, resist parasites better because that can have a bigger effect on the carbon footprint. But also, when not, they can burp less methane. And those are some of the things that we're looking at as well. Uh, and hopefully we'll come to the, you know, the, the market at some point. But that may take a little longer than uh, maybe some of these feed additives.
0: Uh, and Alice, what other opportunities are there for the sector to take action on climate?
1: There are a lot of opportunities, and I think John's covered a lot of those. So, in the in the survey that we did. Um, that the CLA undertook the member survey on climate change. It was actually very promising to see that 68% of respondents had already taken actions that reduce greenhouse gas emissions. Um, and interestingly, that's not far off the government's target of having 75% of farmers engaged in low carbon farming practices by 2030. Although I will admit that we didn't really cover the scale in the survey, so we're not sh- we're not sure the extent of the, the actions that were taken. But some examples include 34% had had, uh, done a reduction in fertilizer use, Um, 31% were improving farm buildings, 30% installed renewable energy, and around 24% reduced fuel consumption. Um, So there are quite a lot of things that farmers can do to reduce their emissions. And actually, fertiliser use is a key one because nitrous oxide is a very potent greenhouse gas. So if we can try and reduce this and still get the same yield from, from our crops, then that's really positive.
0: And with the current prices of fertiliser, then uh, possibly farmers will be reducing application uh, anyway.
1: <laughs> well, this is true. Um, and also going back to what John has mentioned about these potential carbon border border adjustment mechanisms. Fertiliser is something that might be implicated by that. At the moment, these things are, the EU is starting to look at maybe introducing one and they're looking at um, easy to trade, highly tradable goods like steel, iron, um, and fertiliser is, is one that might be considered. But um, we don't know much about this yet, and it's, it's also in the very early stages. Uh,
0: and John, picking up on a the theme that that you mentioned briefly earlier on, that s- some of the actions that farmers can take to reduce their, their carbon footprint is actually good for the business. It's good for the performance of the business. For example, um, I know of many farmers who've adopted rotational grazing techniques that can increase their productivity on farms, but also helps to increase Soil organic matter, which is also captures more carbon, so there is a number of win wins to be had here.
2: Yes, uh, and, and you know, generally, most things work uh, in the favour of you know either making the farm more resilient and it, it's better placed to sort of deal with the extremes of climate change. And we mustn't forget that you know climate change will have potentially detrimental effects on on farmers. So if you've got more carbon, you, you've you've got uh, a better opportunity with that soil to enhance crop growth. Uh, you know, uh, reduce flood risk, uh, absorb water, and, and lock that water into the soil so it's available. You know, during uh, periods of drought for longer. So, you know, there are massive benefits. I suppose the only thing to say is that the, you know a lot of farmers talk about, well, can I get paid for sequestering carbon in my soils? And the answer is yes, potentially, but it's got to be locked away for the long term and. Most of the sort of carbon that's in the soil at the moment, be it under grassland or a crop, it tends to be there for a short period of time, and that's not to say that the sustainable farming incentive may not pay you to improve that carbon because of the benefits it provides in terms of, as we've said, crop health and and you know the management of the soil. But you're going to have to lock carbon up at a much deeper depth for a much longer period of time, and you've got to you know meet things that you know, called uh, additionality. So you've almost got to do something with your land that you wouldn't have planned to do normally that provides that soil locked up at depth. It's got longevity and it's measurable. And that's not easy to do. And I think, you know, this is where probably when it comes to soil carbon, it's going to be harder to make money from that. I think there will just be payments to, you know, do a good job uh, and manage it and measure it on the farm. Alice,
1: Um, it will be interesting as well to see how the uk farmed soil carbon code develops so there is a project going on to try and um basically get a recognized standard for for um sequestering carbon and storing it in your soils but as john said it it's a tricky one soil carbon it 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 isn't necessarily permanent and it is difficult to produce to prove the additionality. So it will be interesting to see how that develops as well, but potentially that could be a route to open it up to a few more people.
0: And there has been talk around you know, the financial opportunities, business opportunities for farmers to get involved in carbon markets. Uh, Obviously, we've got the Woodland Carbon Code, we've got the Peatland Carbon Code, Um, but there is a degree of, um, I guess, scepticism around, well, and understanding that farming needs to meet net zero first and only sell any surplus credits, or you don't want to rush into selling credits, which you might need at some point in the future. Is there some sort of uh, a slight a draw to, to, to take advantage of, of the market, but also some, well, sh- should I reconsider? Should I be sort of cautious about jumping in and selling credits too early on in the market? John, What what what's your view on that?
2: So uh, th- there are several things to unpack there. So first of all, I would say the price of carbon at the moment is too low. And that is reflects the lack of maturity in the market, uh, the lack of uh, standards to underpin you know, uh, the, the way that we can uh, measure offsets and, and demonstrate that they're good quality offsets for those in uh, other parts of UK PLC. So that uncertainty means that the price is low. And actually, if you wait a bit longer, potentially you could get a price that uh, is uh, much more reflective of the, the sort of uh, risks that you are taking as a farmer. I I would say that we need to think about how we develop the market. And if we wait until 2050, there will be no market. So there needs to be some, you know, projects, good quality projects that almost act as demonstrators. uh, And there maybe needs to be some sort of uh, form of public money to support those to help de-risk them for both the investors uh, and the landowners uh, and farmers who are, are sort of taking part in that. But I think, you know, we really do need those standards. We need to also deal with some of the legal niceties. So we don't have, you know, necessarily the covenants that enable you to, you know, lock up some of those projects in perpetuity. There is talk under the Environment Bill of changing um, uh, deeds so that you can put some of these covenants for managing land for biodiversity or for carbon into those deeds and therefore it protects them. And also, we need to think about risk. So if you're managing, uh, maybe you've you've agreed to plant trees as part of a carbon offset project, what happens if those trees burn down? Who's liable for that? What sort of payments do you get in perpetuity for the maintenance of trees? You don't just plant them and forget about them. They require thinning and, and other sort of protection. Those sort of things aren't there at the moment. And so, you know, I would say be very careful when entering into these agreements Um, you know seek legal advice uh, and you know do your due diligence and make sure you're happy if you're happy then great go for it but otherwise I I would uh, potentially wait until we've got some of those legal niceties and standards around it.
1: And in terms of thinking about whether you should be using the carbon you're sequestering for insetting and ensuring that you're reaching net zero or, or selling it to an external company for their use as an offset that that's going to be an individual decision. I would always recommend that you do aim to reach net zero yourself first, um, particularly as we've mentioned with the increasing pressure on supply chains that they should be net zero, and this incorporation of of supply chains within uh, retailers' net zero commitments, um, and then you can look at, at selling that additional carbon on. And also, that kind of gives you the time to really. Understand your baseline. Understand what actions work for you on your holding, um, and let the market develop a bit before you before you look into sell offsets. Uh,
0: and Alice, what's stopping farmers doing more? Do you think are there any barriers to, for transitioning to net zero?
1: So we mentioned the complexity, but I think the other thing that came that came through the survey was really a lack of incentives. So with our member climate change survey only 19% had taken action to on climate because of government incentives and just 15% were taking action to meet customer needs so these are two things i think we can expect to change drastically over the next decade so we we do have schemes coming through that are aiming specifically to pay to pay farmers to reduce their carbon impacts and to help to mitigate against climate change. Um, so hopefully these things will change. But at the moment, it's just that I think the business case really needs to work. Um, and for that to work, there does need to be more incentives.
2: I'd fully agree with that. You know, I think the complexity and in the incentives uh, and de-risking the, the uptake of innovation and move towards net zero is key. I think there's one other very important point as well is that if you are on tenanted land, for example, and, and there there are a lot of farmers who are out there who are, then who gains the benefits for, you know, increasing car- carbon on the land? Is it the landowner who gets that? Is it the tenanted farmer? Is there a, a share in that that sort of profit? And and those sort of things need to be resolved. And and you know there are, there'll be very few tenancies out there that have that sort of condition in there. Um, and if you sublet or you, you sort of let it land, are you, do you know what your baseline is? And again, this is probably why measuring your carbon footprint and understanding what carbon you've got in in your, your sort of farm. Uh, if you're letting the land, you know, are you saying it's got to come back with... X amount of carbon in it, and, and if not, then there's a penalty. Those sort of things need to be thought about uh, increasingly. And again, we haven't got the frameworks for that. Yeah,
0: that's a really interesting point, and I'm sure there'll be a lot of people looking uh, at the, the ways in which they draft tenancy agreements going forward. We're very familiar with records of conditioning, records of condition of buildings and, and and infrastructure. Perhaps there will be a farm carbon record of condition on 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 the beginning and an end of a tenancy. Those are things I'm sure they will have to be worked out in the in the contractual agreements. Between landlords and and tenants, but as a final question to, to to both of you, for farmers who are now starting out on their net zero journey, what would be your key piece of advice to, to them? Um, starting with you, John, and then over to you, Alice.
2: I, I think it's really just understand your business. You know, look at where you are using, you know, that high carbon uh, controllable cost. You know, put it simply, fuel, feed, and fertilizer, regardless of what sector you're in. Those are the areas to look at start small and build up, Uh, look for those commercial opportunities. Um, And, uh, you know, I think that will get you a long way down the road, along with, you know, measure that footprint. You know, a lot of farmers worry about, well, what happens if my data goes up the supply chain, or it's used more widely? On an aggregated basis, there's value for the industry as a whole, but actually the data has most value for you as a farmer, understanding your business and being able to drive that profit.
1: I'd really just echo what John's saying. It's so important to baseline. It's really the first step to take in your journey if you are starting to think about net zero. And of course, the only thing I would really add is just to to have a look at those schemes which are coming out. So for any Welsh members, Gloucester has obviously been running for a, quite a long time. Um, and one of the key goals of that is combating climate change. And then in England, we should have the rollout of the first tier of the environment land management scheme um, the sustainable farming incentive in 2022 um, which is looking primarily at soil at soil management um so there are there are opportunities out there we've got UCO, the english woodland creation um scheme as well um and sort of various funding activities that you can look at. So try and harness some of those, see where you can pull things together, um, maybe stacking these with private markets to really get the, the best opportunities to transition.
2: And actually, that's a really key point. It's about stacking and bundling the benefits. And that's what we want to see for farmers and landowners, rather than everything being piggybacked on the cost of carbon. You know, So we want to see farmers being rewarded for biodiversity net gain, for delivering carbon sequestration offset opportunities, maybe providing clean water, clean air, landscape value, whatever it is, and they get paid for each of those elements.
0: Well, certainly there are a number of opportunities out there. And I think one of the messages coming through is don't be put off by the complexities. Uh, there are advice out there. There's plenty of opportunities to get support through the CLA and other organisations and bodies, but uh, take advantage of those opportunities. Start somewhere. And I think it's very good to, to measure, understand where, you, where your beginning point is and to take those small steps. Uh, it's a journey that, that will take uh, a bit of time, but it's certainly not impossible for farming to reach at zero and there's um, possibly compared to some other industries i think farming's got a lot of opportunities as well well john and alice thank you both ever so much it's been a fascinating podcast this is a a topic i'm sure we're going to be revisiting several times over the months and years ahead but uh, for today thank you very much indeed if you're not a member of the cla you can join today more information can be found on our website www.cla.org.uk thank you for listening and i hope you can join us again soon You've been listening to the Rural Business Uncovered podcast, the CLA's weekly podcast released every Friday. You can find all our episodes wherever you get your podcasts or just search Rural Business Uncovered on your chosen podcast provider. Remember to hit subscribe or follow to make sure you don't miss an episode.